preach and someone says, Scott, you didn't preach that long. Because guess what? Put your seatbelts on today, folks. It may be a little bit longer. I was so excited. I know this sounds bad. When I walked over from Sunday school, it didn't look like we had a full house. But now we have a full house. So like I said in my prayer, I'm going to leave it all behind. I got here early this morning. God had me up at 3 a.m. And if you don't believe me, ask my wife. I have a question for you, and I have two questions for you, and I do want interactive play because, you know, that's how I teach. First word I'm going to ask you is, what is restoration? What is restoration? And the next question I have to you, what are some things that we get restored? So be thinking about that. Who can tell me, what is restoration? Brother-in-law, you restore all day long. What's restoration? Make new. Very good. Anybody else? What else is restoration? Restore. Okay, so things that we restore in everyday lives. My brother-in-law restores cars. Some of us may have furniture restored. Um, We may have jewelry restored. We can have clothing restored. Restoration or being restored, if you want to write a definition for it, is an act of returning something to its former owner or returning it to a certain place or to a certain condition. We maybe even think of restoration as restitution of something lost, okay? So today we're going back to the story of David. You know, this is my part two series. Today we're going back to part two of David in 2 Samuel, and we look at his restoration. And we look at the steps of restoration in our own lives today and when we step away from him. We've all stepped away from him More time than once. In part one of the sermon, we saw that David ignored some very important Christian principles to live by. Now, I should ask, do you remember? That would be called formative assessment in the teacher world. But number one, David didn't ask himself if he had been or if he was in the right place. Remember that point. You should be constantly asking yourself, if I am or have I been in the same place? Are we in those places that lead us to Christian living? Are we on guard? Is there someone else where we should be that we shouldn't be around? Are we too comfortable in a certain place and not where God wants us to be? First principle we talked about last time. Number two, do we know what gets the better of us? Are you recognizing the temptations in your life? Each one of you right now should be making a list in your head of the temptations in your life. What tempts you? Do you wake up daily knowing these are the things that's going to cause you to stumble? And how do you put something in act that day to make sure that you're not going to stumble? And number three... We have to remember that we're not going to comfortably be able to hide sin from God. We can hide sin from each other if we're good at it, but we can't hide sin comfortably. In 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 13, I'm going to read a little bit from last week. Nathan was sent by God to tell from God to David. God says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul, and I gave you the master's house and your master's wives. 
I gave you all of Israel and all of Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. He had it all. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Do we not do this? Do we, don't our, doesn't our God give us it all, all the time? Don't we always want more? We know we're fleshly human beings. We want more. We want more attention. Men, do we want more attention? Yeah, we know we do. Do we want more fame, more money? We want more possessions. We want more stuff, more land, more esteem, more respect. Let's just take a moment and think what God has given us. And we're going to ask ourselves, why isn't it enough? Like David, why wasn't it enough? And God even says, if it wasn't enough, why didn't you just ask me for more? We saw that David was in the wrong place in verse 2 of 2 Samuel 11. He should have been off to war, but we know David being the king, he stayed home and rested and he put his feet up to enjoy all that he had. And not where God wanted him to be, at war, fighting the battle. And it was because of this that he sinned against God with Bathsheba. And we also see David wasn't recognizing what got the better of him. He didn't recognize that as soon as he saw a woman's flesh, he knew what his desires was going to be. And those desires of the flesh then led to her pregnancy And then the murder of her husband, in which he tried to hide. Our father has a strong objective to tutor our hearts. Think about that. Everything that he does is to tutor our hearts, to correct us and to restore us to a life of abundance when we sin. Now for David, that correction started many months later. We should change our mindset. Remember I said this last week. We should change our mindset of what is God doing to me now or how is God punishing me now or how is God testing me now? And we should change that mindset to how is God forcing me closer to him? For when we sin, there are consequences. And we don't often want to think about our God being wrathful or tempting us or being mean to us. But we need to change that mindset to that discipline is bringing us closer to him. Raise your hand if you're a dad in this, in this room, or a grandfather. Now, as earthly fathers, as some of you have been close to many of you, being a father with many of you, it's been a tough road for us. Can I get an amen, men? Yeah. Being a father is tough because there are times I want to discipline my child so that they just know that I am the authority. Right, men? You're going to do it because I am your dad. I'm going to do it because this is the way my dad did it. I'm the boss. I shouldn't chastise my children out of arrogance or to fill some need to show that I'm the boss or the leader of the home. But my discipline should show how to tutor my children's heart. How is my discipline leading them to a more godly path? Now that's easier said than done now that I've raised 
one completely and almost done with another. Picking up at 2 Samuel 12, verse 9, it says, God speaking, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, here's consequences. Here comes those consequences. The sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. When we sin, there are consequences. Verse 11 says, This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. So this is David's punishment for sin. Then David said to Nathan, what did David say to Nathan then? I have sinned against the Lord. So here we are nine months later, almost somewhere near nine months later. Now he's recognizing the sin in his life. He's been living comfortably in that sin. He's kind of hit it all out. He developed plans to have, hit, have Uriah killed. But now he begins his road to restoration by first of all owning up to the sin against the Lord. Now there's many reasons we hide our sin. We hide our sin for the most part because we're ashamed. We hide our sin because it's going to hurt others. We hide our sin because for many reasons. Hebrews 14, 4-13 though says, Nothing in creation, nothing is absolute. It says nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything, which is an absolute, is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of to whom we must give account. So that right there in Hebrews 4.13 shows us that we are not hiding anything from God. Let's talk about Nathan for a minute. Nathan was sent to God to confront David about his sin. Nancy, this is where I'm looking at you. Remember I told you earlier? Great point, Nancy, in Sunday school. Write this down if you're a note taker. Part of our spiritual growth, part of our spiritual growth calls us to participate in the spiritual growth of others. Well, get that in your mind. Part of our spiritual growth is to participate in the spiritual growth of others. Five or six years ago when they said, Scott, you've got to teach adult Sunday school class. There's no one else to do it. Ask me what's happened to my spiritual life, my biblical knowledge in five or six years. Scott, you need to talk to this man about baptism or this son, this, my son about baptism and about salvation. Scott, you know your friend is sinning. You need to talk to them about that. Spiritual growth calls us to participate in the spiritual growth of others. God will use us to help other Christians see the truth of their spiritual condition. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. It's messy. Think about Nathan. Here he is. He's going. He's called by God. 
But he's not doing it through judgment, and he's not doing it through opinion. It's biblically based, it's done through prayer, and it's done out of love. When we are going to others about their sin, we're not making it about ourselves. We're we're making it about the kingdom. Galatians 6, 1 through 2 says, Brothers and sisters, that's us, the saved. If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, those who live in the Spirit, should restore that person how? Gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Church, I'm going to ask you as you leave this place each day, as you leave Sunday school, as you leave your family's homes, as you leave friends' homes, are you carrying their burdens? Does your heart ache for friends who are in turmoil? Are your hearts aching for those you know that do not have the peace of Christ? We know that the penalty of our sins has already been paid by Jesus Christ. We also know that God will do whatever it takes to get us back. Psalms 119, 67 through 72 says, Before I was afflicted. That word is going to be a big word today, afflicted. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. I want you to think about that statement. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. So before God afflicted me for my sins, I went astray. But now I obey your word. He's going to tutor my heart. He's going to bring me closer to him through those consequences. You are good and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees, Lord. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. It was good for me to be afflicted. Think about that. Have you ever said that? It was good for me to be afflicted so that I may learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. We learn obedience by being disciplined. Do you remember when you were disciplined by your parents? Oh, I do. My mother had a switch and she had a house shoe. Now, there were times I know my mother was not tutoring my heart. She was 5'2", and we were all bigger than her by fourth grade. There were times she wasn't tutoring our hearts, but we were disciplined. Obedience to Christ is the trademark of biblical Christians. I read that, and I love that. Think about that. Repeat it with me. Obedience to Christ is the trademark of biblical Christians. God's discipline is always good for us so that we can share in his holiness. Anybody want to share in his holiness? We can share in his holiness through God's discipline. A peaceful harvest of right living awaits us when we are obedient. We've all had those times when we have been obedient and we've been good. We've been following the commandments. We've tried to make sure we're doing all the things, you know, the checklist. 
or more so we're just having more of a relationship with him than less of a checklist. It is those times we are experiencing the harvest of peace that God gives us. So now enough about that. Let's talk about restoration. There's four steps to restoration that I'm going to talk about today. First step in restoration is we must understand that restoration is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think we need to do a lot of work and a lot of preaching and a lot of studying about the Holy Spirit. Anybody else? Amen. Restoration is the work of the Holy Spirit. The process of correction and restoration begins the moment we go astray. The Holy Spirit's doing that work the moment we sin, but we never may get the tutoring until much later. John 16, 7 through 9 says this about the Holy Spirit. Very truly, I tell you, it is good that I go away. This is Jesus talking. It's good that I go away, he says, unless I go away, the advocate, who's the advocate? The Holy Spirit, the comforter will not come to you. But if I go, he says, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove to the world to be in the wrong about sin. He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me. Ephesians 4.30 says about this, about the Holy Spirit. Think about this. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. If any of you have ever grieved, you know what grieved feels like. When you're in grief, I wrote three words for me. Grief is emptiness. Grief is despair. And grief is gut-wrenching. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit grieves when we sin. Restoration, number two, we must understand repentance and what it is. I think for many of us, repentance is this. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. Repentance is this. I found this definition that I've never thought of repentance as this. Listen to this. When the seeds of regret, we know about regret, right? I'm 50 years old. I've got a lot of regrets. When the seeds of regret are sown into our hearts. Repentance is truly when the seeds of regret are sown into our hearts. Do you have godly sorrow when you repent? When you do wrong, when you break those commandments, when you're not living righteously, You must ask yourself, do you have godly sorrow? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So what is true repentance? It says, godly sorrow brings repentance. 
It's not that I'm sorry because my marriage is going to heck. It's not that I'm sorry because I rebuked my children in the wrong way. It's not that I'm sorry because I lost something of my possessions. It's godly sorrow because my God has been striked again. True repentance is turning away. So many times we turn back to the same sin over and over. And why? Because we're not thinking about are we in the right place? Are we where we're supposed to be? Number two, do we know what gets us? Let's look at Psalms 51. If you turn to nothing today, go to Psalms 51. Psalms 51 is personalized to this sermon today. And when I say sermon coming from my mouth, it's still strange to say, folks, especially for those of you who know me in quotation marks. I want you to listen to the godly sorrow in David speaking in Psalm 51. Let's look how David prayed, and I want you to compare your prayer life to David's prayer in Psalms 51. Psalms 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Those first two verses, David is doing this. He's recognizing God as something bigger than him. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions. Listen to that. He's done some self-evaluation. He's had conviction. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict. He's accepting consequences here. And justified when you judge me. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. David's ashamed. He's praying with godly sorrow. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. There's regret again. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David's saying, correct me, God. Move me closer to you. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. 
a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So I asked you, when you pray, are you praying like David? Are you doing all the things David doing? Are you recognizing your sin? Are you aware of your sin? Are you accepting your sin? Are you ashamed of your sin? Do you recognize how God can correct you? And are you praising him? Remember, ask yourself, do you have godly sorrow? And what happens when you have godly sorrow? Repentance. Third step to restoration is consequences. Ooh, this is the part we don't like. We saw a glimpse of what David's consequences could be. And I encourage you to keep on reading from that point. We saw the calamity that was going to happen to David's family. And we must understand that all sin has consequences and they aren't always immediate. Sins of marriage lead to divorce. Sins of marriage lead to our children sometimes being corrupt. Sins of marriage sometimes sends our children to hell. Sins of drunkenness leads to accidents. They tarnish your Christian witness. They can lead to jail time. They can lead to loss of family. They can lead to problems in relationships. Sins of not being a good steward of money could lead to bankruptcy or embarrassment. Or children suffer, loss of possessions. And how about that sin of temper? Maybe some loss of friends, loss of jobs, maybe breaking the law. The important part about the consequences is our attitude we have, the attitude we have during this time of correctness, during this tutoring time when he restores us. And the fourth and last point that leads to restoration is we must guard our own heart as you go forward. We're not battling with the armor that we need to battle with, folks. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from your heart. If you're not guarding your heart, guess what's going to come out of your mouth? If you're not guarding your heart, guess what's going to come off your hands? You may be asking yourself, how do I guard my heart? Three ways. First one, I must become a man or a woman of the word. First way to guard your heart is I must become a man or a woman of the word. The word is unique. It's written for us. It's a spiritual power, not only to rebuke, but also to teach and train us. We get a lot of excuses about why we don't read the Bible. I could ask every one of you to write an excuse that we don't read our Bibles. I don't have time. I don't get up early enough. I don't know which Bible to read. 
I don't understand it. There's too many big words. We've been relying on those too long, folks. The only way to read the Bible and learn to read the Bible is to read the Bible. Can I get an amen? Once you read the Bible, God will show you what to read. Do I get another amen? Sorry that I have to ask for them. Number two, how can we guard our heart? We have to be the person that we are in private that we are in public. We have to be the same person. Man, that's hard, isn't it? I'm going to ask you right now, could you leave your computer and your phone in the empty room of strangers or maybe loved ones and let them see everything that's on it? Would you let them read every text? Would you look them, let them look at your search history? You need to be the same person in private that you are in public. How do you speak to a stranger on the phone? How do you speak to someone that you know you're never going to see again? Maybe it's a bill collector or an internet provider. Do you act the same way when surrounded by your temptations as you do when you're not tempted? When around new people, do you act a certain way to fit in or to seem to be something you want to be? Number three. Number one was become a man or word of the man or woman of the word. Number two, one life, one way, no mask. Number three, to guard my own heart, I must cultivate. I'm going to say this slowly for you note takers. I must cultivate a sense of immediate presence of God. I must be cultivating an immediate sense of the presence of God at all times. We all sin. But are we constantly thinking about God is in the same room with me? When I'm on the phone with the technician, Jesus is with me. When I'm in the car, Jesus is with me. Jesus is with me when I'm home alone. Jesus is with me when I talk to my buddy on the phone. Jesus is with me when I'm with my closest friends. And I think it's all right to say those off-color things. Jesus is with me when I talk to my child's teacher that I really don't like. Jesus is with me when I'm on the phone to anybody. Jesus is with me when someone wrongs someone that I love. Isn't that hard when someone wrongs someone that you love? Don't wrong, don't wrong my wife or my children. But Jesus is in the room. So I want you to ask yourself today, have you been guarding your own heart By becoming that man or woman of the word, by living one life one way, are you cultivating a sense of immediate presence of Christ at all times? Now, we can't guard our hearts alone. We try it. But what happens when we try it? You young people in the room, what's happening to you right now when you're trying to guard your heart on your own or you're trying to live life on your own? You're falling right on your face. How do I know? Because I'm 50 and there's times I still fall in my face. But God did bring David's life back to a life of obedience. The consequences drew him closer to him. Today, as my musicians come back up, I want to have a couple questions.
As my musicians come back up, I have a couple questions for you. Have you convinced yourself? Now, some of you young people, you have. Because I met with a young man about a year ago, and he had convinced himself that he had done something so great that God could never use him. Are you stuck there? Oh, I've, I have sinned so bad that God can never use me. Also, I'm asking you this. Have you ever told yourself that you've done something so unthinkable that if anyone knew about it, they would never accept you? I want you to think about that. As we stand today, that means stand. As we stand today, I want you to think about these things. God will restore your sin, and it's not going to be always pretty. It's always not going to feel good. But we need to understand that He does forgive us. He's done the work already. He took the strikes for us. But we need to understand that He's tutoring our, tutoring our heart through those. Tay, I'm asking you to recognize your sin. I'm asking you to repent of your sin. I'm asking you to allow God to bring yourself closer to Him. I'm asking you today through this invitation to make decisions that you need to make, whether they be in your own seat or if they be at this altar. I'm asking for you now to do that as we sing.